Well, the title of uh, this Colossians sermon series is Firmly Established and Steadfast, and there's a subtitle there as well, The Need for Prayer, Christ, Sacrifice, Revelation, and Application in the Life of the Church. If you have an outline, you can see that there. And I titled it this because <clears throat> this title captures two main big picture aspects of this letter as a whole that are important and helpful for us to remember as we move through the verses. And so uh, the first thing I want to do this morning is just briefly review those two big picture aspects of the letter that I've previously talked about so that we have the proper context in mind as we continue discussing the verses this morning. Um, and this is the first point of introduction on your outline, big picture review. So the first thing this title captures is Paul's main purpose in writing this letter. Paul's main purpose in writing this letter uh, was to warn and exhort and encourage the believers in Colossae to continue to live faithfully to, to the gospel, both internally and externally. That is to say, both in their beliefs about the gospel and in how they then lived out those beliefs. Uh, this is something they had been doing up to this point. They knew the truth of the gospel. They knew what God had done for them in Christ, and they had been living that faith out in practice. But Paul was concerned that they might not continue in this manner. He was concerned that the true knowledge uh, that their pastor Epaphras had previously imparted to them and that they had previously professed faith in would begin to lose its power both in their minds and in the way it impacted how they lived. And, and that is because there were false and heretical teachers among the believers who were teaching uh, lies about their faith and teaching lies about the gospel, and teaching lies about who Jesus is, and teaching lies about how to live faithfully in light of that knowledge. And so Paul writes this letter to counter those false teachers, and, and to warn, and, and exhort, and encourage those believers in Colossae to remain what they had been up to this point, that is, firmly established and steadfast in their faith. And so the first part of the sermon series title, Firmly Established and Steadfast, captures that, and it captures Paul's purpose in writing this letter. The second big picture aspect of this letter that the title captures are the five themes that Paul highlights throughout the letter as a means to help him accomplish his purpose of exhorting the Colossians to remain faithful. Uh, specifically, he highlights the themes of prayer, um, of Christ, of sacrifice, of revelation, uh, by which I mean the truths that God has already revealed, which for us is specifically in the scripture. And, and then lastly, the theme of application, uh, which is to apply what God has revealed in one's life. And, and so you can see those themes captured in the sermon series subtitle. And while all of these themes are, are woven throughout the letter, uh, we also see Paul move through these themes somewhat systematically in the letter. So the theme of prayer, it dominates the first half of chapter one. These are the verses we looked at uh, in my last sermon on Colossians. Uh, the theme of Christ dominates roughly the second half of chapter 1. These are the verses that we're going to look at this morning. As we end chapter 1 and move into chapter 2, the theme of sacrifice takes over. Paul tells the believers in Colossae how he's been sacrificing for them and for their faithfulness. Uh, picking up in verse 4 of chapter 2 and moving all the way through verse 4 of chapter 3, the theme of revelation becomes the main focus. Paul points the readers to the truths that God has already revealed to them, and in doing so, directly refutes the false teachings of the heretics. And then in the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Paul highlights the theme of application. Paul reminds them about how to apply in their lives the truth of the gospel that had previously been taught to them. And so Paul points to these five themes as he moves through the letter, and these themes would help him as he exhorted those believers to continued faithfulness. Uh, in addition, these five themes of Paul in this letter are a good guide for us here in this present time as we seek to be and remain a faithful church like those in Colossae. This is something I elaborated on in my introductory sermon, uh, so I won't go into much detail here. Uh, but I will remind you that these five themes give us a, a picture of what ought to characterize and, and mark our fellowship as we seek to faithfully live out the gospel in our local church community here in Los Angeles. They remind us that we ought to be marked first by regularly praying for one another as a Christian practice. 
Uh, Second, by being unashamed and unrelenting in our preaching of Christ, both from this pulpit and in our own individual lives. Uh, Third, by our willingness to joyfully sacrifice for one another and serve one another and be patient and long-suffering with one another, even when we don't necessarily see eye to eye on something. Uh, Fourth, we ought to be marked by our insistence on studying the whole counsel of God as revealed in the scriptures and not skipping parts that that we might think are unnecessary or, or that might be uncomfortable to talk about. And fifth and lastly, we must be marked by seeking to daily apply God's word in our lives. And so as we continue to move through this letter, I want you all to keep this sermon series title in your mind because it encompasses Paul's purpose in writing this letter. It highlights the themes Paul points to, which help him accomplish his purpose, and it gives us a guide for what ought to mark our church here on mission in Los Angeles. Okay, so that's the big picture review and how it connects to the sermon series title. Now, the title of today's sermon is The Incomparable Christ. And we will be looking at verses 13 to 23 of chapter 1, where we see the theme of Christ take center stage. So if you could open your Bibles um, or open your your apps on your phone and be ready to follow along there in a moment. Uh, But before we do that, let me as well briefly remind you about the previous sermon on this letter, uh, where we looked at verses 3 through 12, because even though my last sermon stopped at verse 12, that doesn't mean that what comes next isn't connected to those prior verses and isn't flowing from those verses. And so it's important to do a a brief review of those verses so that we're all ready then to move into verse 13 this morning. This leads to the second introductory point on your outline, prior verses review. Recall in verses 3 through 12, we saw how Paul highlighted the theme of prayer. We just talked about the five themes of this letter. Well, prayer is one of those, and and, and it's the focus of verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1. Uh, More specifically in those verses, uh, we saw Paul and his companions, uh, how they were as a regular Christian practice, praying always for those believers in Colossae. And Paul mentions two types of prayers that he prayed on their behalf. The first were prayers of thanksgiving, where he thanked God for sustaining those believers and for giving them a true and living and active faith, a faith that was grounded in the, the hope of the return of Christ. This is what we saw in verses 3 through 8. And the second type of prayer were prayers of intercession, where Paul asked God that those believers would continue to be filled with true knowledge, so as not to be influenced by the false knowledge of the heretics. As well, Paul interceded to God that as they were filled with true knowledge, that it would lead to them continuing to live faithfully and continuing to bear fruit in their lives, just as it had previously done. This is what we saw in verses 9 through 10. And then in verse 11, Paul reminds them of God's power and how God's power is something they are empowered by so that they can remain steadfast in their faith, no matter what or who tries to hinder them, which would have been a great comfort for those readers specifically in light of the false teachers who were among them and who were actually trying to hinder their faith. And then in verse 12, Paul again reminds them of their hope, that thing that he earlier had thanked God that they were living faithfully in light of. That thing that ought to have motivated and impacted every decision they made. Paul reminds them again of this hope, but this time in verse 12, he refers to it as their inheritance. Look at verse 12. Colossians 1, verse 12. You see that? The word inheritance. And Paul tells them that God qualified them for this. You see that word as well? The word qualified in verse 12. God is the one who qualified them for their inheritance, for that thing they were hoping and longing and waiting for. They didn't have an inheritance based on something they did. It's based on something God does. And so because of that, Paul tells them that they ought to be joyously thanking God. You see that at the end of verse 11 and into verse 12, joyously giving thanks to the Father, that is God the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. This inheritance, this hope, is is the future promise of a time when believers will dwell with Christ, with Jesus forever, free from any stain or blemish of sin. And so Paul tells them to be joyously thanking God for what he's done in qualifying them for this future hope, this 
future inheritance. And I want you to keep this concept of the, the hope and the inheritance in the back of your heads as we move through the sermon this morning because this concept will flow into the next verses and it will come up in different ways as we move through those verses. And in fact, we see that right away in verse 13. Because in verse 13, Paul will elaborate more on what it means that God has qualified them for this inheritance. Uh, more specifically, in verses 13 to 14, Paul elaborates on how God the Father qualified them for this inheritance, this future hope of a time when they will dwell with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that takes us into verses 13 to 14 this morning and into the first main point on your outline, the how of the inheritance. Follow along with me as I read verses 13 to 14. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> it says, For He, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now remember, this is unpacking what Paul said in verse 12 about God qualifying us for an inheritance. This is giving us the how of that. How did God qualify us? Well, as verse 13 says, by rescuing us from the domain of darkness. Now, you see that in verse 13? He rescued us from the domain of darkness. Now, this does beg the question, though, of why do we need rescuing? And the reason is sin. One of the core tenets of the Christian faith is that every mere human that has ever been born is a sinner. So all of us, we're sinners. And we're not sinners because we sin. Instead, we sin because we are sinners. In other words, we can't not sin. And that's because at the very moment we are conceived, we inherit the fallenness of our forefather, Adam. Adam, as, as the first man ever created by God, represented all of humanity that would come. And Adam was given a choice by God to either obey him or disobey him. And Adam chose to do the latter. He, he rebelled against God and disobeyed him. And because Adam stood as the representative for all humanity to come, we, who are his descendants, were all affected and infected by his disobedience, his sin and rebellion. Sin is part of our very nature and makes up who we are from the very first moment of our lives at conception. And so, as I said a moment ago, we have all sinned and disobeyed God because it's who we are. We are sinners. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to you, the fact that we are all sinners. And, and it wouldn't be if that were the end of the story, but that's not the end of the story. You see, sin carries with it a punishment because to sin is to break God's law. And when you break the law, there's a consequence for that. And this should be of no surprise to you because all societies function this way. Societies have laws, and if you obey the law, you don't incur punishment. Uh, incidentally, you also don't incur rewards for obeying the law. It's expected of you. But if you break the law, you do incur punishment. And even more so with God because he is perfect in his justice. Being just is one of his attributes, meaning he can't ignore the breaking of his law. To do so would make him unjust and would mean he would cease to be that which he is, which he cannot do. So sin demands and carries with it a punishment, and the punishment is the taking back of the life that God gave. And so when Adam sinned the very first time, God said to him in Genesis 3.19, To dust you shall return. And this punishment extends to all of us because as Romans 5.12 says, Through one man Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And through Adam, we are imputed guilt, and we've all inherited a sinful nature which leads to us in our own lives personally sinning against God, and so we are all subjected to the punishment of death. And as well, sin carries with it the punishment of everlasting separation from God after we die, where we will incur further punishment for sinning against an infinitely holy God. In light of God's infinite perfection and holiness, this is the only punishment that fits the crime of disobeying him. And this separation from God, it doesn't just start after we biologically die. 
Instead, we are separated from God spiritually at the very moment we are conceived because of the sin of Adam that we inherited. And so then as we live in this world, awaiting death and awaiting our everlasting fate, we are separated from God. And in our separation of God, we are enslaved instead to the ruler of this world. The one that Paul refers to in Ephesians 2 as the prince of the power of the air. He's also called the devil and, and Satan and the evil one. These are all names the Bible attaches to the one who God has allowed for the time being to have some measure of control over the world and over the humans that are separated from God and living in this world. And so as sinners, not only are we subject to death, and everlasting separation from God in the life to come, but we are also enslaved to the devil in this life and continuing to live in disobedience while we await our future punishment. But, going back to Colossians 1.12, for those God has chosen to qualify for an inheritance, as verse 12 of Colossians 1 says, for those God has rescued from the domain of darkness, as verse 13 of Colossians 1 says. This phrase, domain of darkness, is a metaphor for evil and the sphere of Satan's rule. And those in the domain of darkness are those who are separated from God and living under the rule of the evil one, as I just said. This is what God has rescued those he has qualified for an inheritance out of. He has pulled them out of the depths of sin, and he has pulled them out of the clutches of the devil, and even more importantly, freed them from getting the punishment they deserve in the life to come. God has rescued them from that and instead transferred them into another domain, that of the kingdom of his beloved son, as we see at the end of verse 13. This is necessary, this rescuing us from the domain of darkness in order to receive the inheritance Paul spoke about in verse 12. And remember, the inheritance is everlasting life with Jesus, with God, free from sin and death, which is the opposite of what we all deserve, which is everlasting separation from God and what those still living in the domain of darkness will receive. Now, if you're tracking with what I said a few moments ago, you should have a question at this point. You should be saying to yourself, well, if God can't ignore our sin because he is perfectly just, right? as I said earlier, how then does he take us out of the domain of darkness, which is where we deserve to be, and put us instead into the kingdom of his son, where we receive an inheritance, which is something we don't deserve because of our sin. Didn't you just say that would make him unjust if he just ignores the breaking of his law without punishing it? And the answer to that question would be yes, if that was in fact true, that God did ignore our sin and didn't punish it. But that's not what happened. Instead, the punishment that we deserve and that was required by God for sin, death, the wages of sin is death, that price has already been paid, and that is what is captured in verse 14 when Paul says to the Colossians, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see that in verse 14? Redemption and forgiveness of sins. Redemption means to pay the price that is owed to clear a debt, and the debt we owe God for our sin is death. That price has already been paid in full by someone else, and so then God is justified in forgiving the sins of those whose debt was paid, those who were redeemed by that other person. And that other person that paid that debt and is the one who offers redemption and the forgiveness of sins is the one whose kingdom we have been transferred into, God the Son. Right? You see it at the end of verse 13, end of verse 14. His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. More specifically, this is referring to God the Son incarnate, Jesus the one Paul thanked God that those believers in Colossae had professed saving faith in back in verse 4. He, the God-man, Jesus, has already dealt with the punishment that we deserve for our sins against God. And so then for those God the Father has chosen and qualified to receive the future inheritance of everlasting life with the Son, per verse 12, for those he has chosen, he has also in this present life removed them out of the domain of darkness and put them into the kingdom of the Son per verse 13, so they're no longer enslaved to sin, but instead can cast aside their old ways and live in obedience to God now as they await their... ...14. There we go. This is how a person is qualified 
to receive the inheritance. It's through being rescued by God and redeemed by the Son as we read in verses 13 to 14. And then as we move into verses 15 through 20, Paul's going to remind those believers in Colossae in more detail just who exactly the God-man Jesus is and what he did that they can have redemption and the forgiveness of sins through him. He's going to remind them who he is and point them to how he is incomparable to any other man who ever lived. Remember, Paul's trying to strengthen the faith of the Colossians so they don't continue to be blown around in their beliefs by the heretics. That their understanding of what God had done for them and who exactly Jesus is and how he can offer forgiveness of sins has already begun to get shaken. And we know this because later in the letter we read that their pastor, Epaphras, was deeply concerned for their faithfulness. And so having just reminded them how they have an inheritance and how they don't live in the domain of darkness anymore, here in verses 15 through 20, Paul is going to as well remind them of things they already know about Jesus. Paul will remind them of what they already know, likely as a way to counter the things the false teachers were teaching about Jesus, so they might recall the truth and then be strengthened to remain steadfast and faithful and not be influenced and, and led astray by these false teachers. And so Paul tells them in verses 15 through 20, who Jesus is, so they fully understand what qualifies him Jesus to qualify them, the believers in Colossae, to receive an inheritance and to receive the forgiveness of sins and to be pulled out of the domain of darkness. This takes us into point two on your outline, the who of the inheritance. Look at verses 15 through 20 with me. I'm going to read through them and then we'll go back and talk about them. Colossians 1 verse 15, he, that is God the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So, who is Jesus that he is qualified to qualify us for an inheritance? Well, first, as we read in verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And by image, Paul does not mean that he had some mere resemblance or similarity to God. Instead, he means to communicate the idea that Jesus participates in and is one with the very nature of God. And that's possible because the one true and living God, the one that we read about in the Bible, eternally exists as three distinct persons, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But each is equally God, and they cannot be separated or divided from that one divine nature. They eternally coexist as the one true God. And in the first century... In, in real time and history, God the Father sent God the Son to take on a second nature in addition to his divine nature. And that second nature was that of humanity. By, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, the, the historical Mary conceived a child and gave birth to this child. And this child was God the Son from eternity past. This is what we refer to as the Incarnation. And the result of this was that the invisible God had become visible in the God-man, Jesus the Christ. Jesus is not a copy of God. Instead, he is visibly manifesting and perfectly revealing God as a divine person in the flesh because he himself is God the Son from eternity past. And we read how Jesus, during his life and ministry, he makes this claim of himself. And he says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. In John 14, 9, he says, He who has seen me has seen 
the Father. Such claims could not be made of any mere human or angel or spiritual power. They could only be made of God himself. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. Paul continues in the second half of verse 15 and says that Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation. And this phrase, firstborn of all creation, it should not be taken in a temporal sense because even though Jesus was born in time and space, he also existed as God the Son from eternity past, as I already said. Instead, with this phrase, firstborn of all creation, Paul is pointing to Jesus being the catalyst for creation, the one through whom all things came into existence. And this is what Paul goes on in verse 16 to say. Look at verse 16 again. It says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so since Christ is the eternal son who participated in the act of creation, as he is God himself, he stands over and beyond the created world, both the visible and invisible, as the agent by which everything came into existence. And as well, as verse 17 states, he is also the agent by which everything in existence is held together. You see that in verse 17? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is the creator and sustainer of everything. And again, for those readers who were actually having people come in and attack their beliefs and attack what they thought to be true and were actually disrupting their fellowship with Jesus and with one another, for them being reminded that Jesus is the sustainer of all things and that he holds all things in the palm of his hand, for them this would have given them the encouragement and confidence they needed to remain steadfast in the face of all these attacks because they know that the one they have faith in is actually the one who is in control of it all. And for us too, as we live life in this world and, and in a time that is anything but perfect and that is filled with the consequences and effects of sin, for us living in the here and now, Seeing and recognizing Jesus as not just the one who created all things, but also as the one who sustains all things. And more personally, as the one who sustains believers, as he has promised to be with us until the ends of the age. Knowing this, that Jesus is our sustainer and that he is with us to the end, knowing and, and meditating on this truth can bring us much comfort and, and, and much peace because it directly speaks to and gives us an answer to how we can deal with the many things in our lives that seem like they are too much for us to handle. Uh, things like overwhelming anxiety and depression, which if you know me, you know is something I've personally dealt with. Uh, things like chronic uh, pain and illness, which, which I personally know people in our congregation are dealing with. Uh, things like losing loved ones, which many of you have. Things like uncontrollable fears that we might have. Things like uncertainty and a lack of trust about what God has in store for us personally or, or what God is doing in the world globally. If you truly know and understand and trust in Jesus that he will truly sustain you through all of these things and through all of the twists and turns of life, if you truly know this, then even in the midst of anxiety and pain and loss and uncertainty, even in the midst of this, if you truly believe that Jesus will sustain you, then you will find much comfort and much joy, even in the midst of much chaos. In fact, you will find a peace that surpasses all understanding and that can only be found in Jesus. So in verses 16 through 17, Paul has shown the readers that Jesus is both the creator and Sustainer, And it is in this way, then, that he is the firstborn of all creation, as Paul says in verse 15. And notice how in verses 16 through 17, Paul has repeated this phrase, all things, four times in just these two verses. Right? You see that in the text? Look at it. Scan those verses, verses 16 to 17, this phrase, all things. He uses it four times. 
Paul's really driving home Christ's superiority and authority over everything, which suggests that the false teachers and their teachings were giving undue prominence to other forces and other powers other than Jesus. And so here, Paul makes clear to the believers in Colossae that Jesus is Lord over all these other forces and powers, and in fact, over everyone and everything. So who is Jesus that he is qualified to qualify us for redemption and the forgiveness of sins as we read in verse 14? Well, according to verses 15 through 17, he is the God of creation who holds all things together and who stands over and above all else that was created. He is incomparable in this way. And as we move into verse 18, Paul's going to turn his discussion from talking about how Christ has priority and preeminence over his creation to how he also has priority and preeminence over his church more specifically over those people who have professed true and living faith in him in this age that we live in. Look at verse 18 again with me. Verse 18 says, He, that is Jesus, He is also, along with being Lord over creation, He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. So while Christ is head of the whole creation, Paul specifies here that he is also head over the church, which Paul calls his body. Now, Paul uses the same word body in other letters, uh, like Romans and 1 Corinthians, uh, and in those letters, he uses this term body as a way to emphasize uh, the mutual relationships and obligations that should exist among the members of Christ's body in a local church, and how we ought to care for and, and love and sacrifice for one another the same way we would our own bodies. And th this, of course, is all true, but that's not Paul's point here. Instead, his use of the word body here is to drive home the idea that while Jesus is Lord over the creation, all beings in the creation, he is also in a more unique and personal way, Lord and head over all whom the Father has qualified for an inheritance. Why? Because he is the beginning of them. And you see that in verse 18? Beginning. Just as he was the beginning of the creation as the creator, he is also the beginning of the church because he is the firstborn from the dead, as we read in the middle of verse 18. Now, what does this mean, firstborn from the dead? And how does it make Jesus the beginning and, and head of the body, the church? Well, to understand that, we, we need to backtrack for a moment. Go back to our discussion of sin and the punishment for our sin that we discussed earlier. And remember the punishment all humans deserve for their sin is, is death and everlasting separation from God. That's the wages of sin, death. And there's nothing we can do to fix this on our own. Why? Because God's law demands perfect obedience. So if you've sinned and broken his law even once, then you're guilty before him. And you can't come to God at the end of your life and say to him, look, God, my good outweighed my bad over my life, so you shouldn't punish me. No, it doesn't work that way. We don't gain favor or receive credits for doing the things that we ought to do. That line of argumentation wouldn't even satisfy a human judge, let alone a divine judge. If you killed someone, you couldn't go into the courtroom and, and, and list all the ways that you obeyed the law over your life as a reason for them not to punish you, and all the more so with an infinitely holy God who can't have any part of disobedience or sin and who is perfectly just in his punishment of it. And so we're all stuck. and We're dead in our trespasses against God. But there's good news, as we've already talked about, and that good news was given to us in verse 14, and that is that God the Son incarnate, Jesus, the God-man, provides redemption and the forgiveness of sins because he satisfied the demands of the infinitely holy God. I mentioned this in part earlier when I said that Jesus dealt with the punishment that all humanity deserves. But I didn't talk about how he did this. He did this by doing what no other mere human could do. Because he is fully God, he was able to live a life free from any stain or blemish of sin and in perfect obedience to God the Father. Because he is also fully man, he then can stand in the place of, of humans as their substitute to pay the wages for our sins. And he did. He, he freely gave his life up in death 
And, and he allowed men to hang him on a cross, and he freely took on the wrath of God the Father while on that cross. In other words, he took on the punishment that we all deserve so that we wouldn't have to endure this punishment. And while his sacrifice is sufficient enough in its power and magnitude to cover the sins of everyone throughout all time, it's only efficient to save those whom God graciously applies it to as evidenced in a personal profession of faith in Jesus' perfect life and death and resurrection from the dead. He didn't just die, but afterwards he rose victorious from the grave to prove that his sacrifice was actually accepted by God the Father and that he did in fact conquer the wages of sin, which is death. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead is something all of us must personally profess faith in if we want to be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son as we read in verse 13. But if we do profess this faith, then like the Colossians, we are rescued from the domain of darkness and we will be transferred into the kingdom of the Son and we will be part of the body that he is the head of, as verse 18 says, and because of this, we will receive what Jesus received, that is resurrection from the dead. And this is that hope that, that we in the Colossians await that we read about in verse 5 and that Paul calls our inheritance in verse 12. It's that time when we will, like Jesus was, be resurrected from the dead and be given new glorified physical bodies that will be free from sin and death and corruption. And it is at that point that we will dwell with our Lord Jesus forever. This is what Paul's getting at in verse 18 when he says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And this is how he is the beginning and the head of the body, which is the church. It's because all who profess faith in him will, when he returns, be raised to life like he was. And in the meantime, we've been transferred into his kingdom, into his domain, and, and taken out of the domain of darkness. It is in this sense that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and this is why he will come to have first place in everything, as we read at the end of verse 18. He will come to have first place in everything because he is incomparable as the Lord of creation, as we read in verses 15 through 17, and he is incomparable as the Lord over his people, the church, as we read in verse 18. This is who Jesus is, that he can offer the forgiveness of sin. And this is who Jesus is, that he can qualify a person to receive the inheritance of everlasting life. And then in verses 19 through 20, uh, Paul will go on to reiterate some of the things we just read as a way to reinforce them and, and, and really drive them in for the readers. So, for example, verse 19, look at it again. Paul says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Right, him being Jesus is similar to what he said in verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Okay, but here he's even more specific by saying that all the fullness dwells in him. Right, this is likely intentional and, and may have been meant to counter a part of the, the heretics' false teachings. It's possible these heretics were falsely teaching that Jesus was only uh, temporarily inhabited by the divine essence of God, or, or maybe he wasn't fully God in the same way the, the Father and, and Spirit were. Whatever the case, Paul here seems to be pushing back against some sort of heretical teaching on this subject and making a clear statement that Jesus is actually and uniquely fully God in the flesh and always will be. The divine Son will never and could never depart from the man Jesus because Jesus is the eternal Son who is now and forever the God-man Jesus and therefore he has ultimate power over all other creatures. And so Paul says in verse 19 that all the fullness dwells in him. In verse 20, Paul continues uh, reiterating some previous topics. Look at verse 20 again. Paul says, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Again, we, we talked about how our sin puts us at odds with God and how he had rightly separated himself from us because of it. We're his enemies in the domain of darkness, as verse 13 pointed out. But Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, offers reconciliation. He offers peace between us and God by making available redemption and the forgiveness of sins, like verse 14 said. And that peace will one day extend to all creation. Paul specifically says in verse 20 that through Jesus, God would reconcile 
all things to himself. You see that? Reconcile all things. And then at the end of verse 20, Paul elaborates by saying whether things on earth or things in heaven. And this ties back to Jesus being Lord over all creation, as we read in verses 15 through 17. Right? Not only is he Lord because he is the creator, but he will additionally one day bring all creation under his lordship. This is what he accomplished through his death, the right to reign as Lord over all. And isn't that just such good news for us after the, the crazy 18 months we've had? To know that, that Jesus will one day put everything back in its rightful order and place everything in subjection under his feet? You recall earlier in the sermon, I said how God has for the time being allowed uh, the devil to have some measure of authority over the sinful world and over those who live in it. Well, that will end one day. God will punish it, and he will vanquish it from his creation once and for all. And, and that is what Paul is getting at when he says Jesus will reconcile all things to God. And while Paul doesn't elaborate on this here, he does say more about this in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 2, in speaking about this future time, Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This verse is speaking of a future time when Christ, who is right now exalted and at the right hand of the Father, will reign physically on earth. And when he does, there will be universal reconciliation and peace. And all will recognize his lordship, those in heaven, those on earth, both spiritual and physical beings. But for those who haven't repented of their sin, it won't be a joyful surrender like it is for the believer. But instead, they will be compelled to submit by a power they cannot resist. The power of the Lord Jesus himself. The power of the incomparable Christ. And ultimately, it will result in everlasting punishment for them, as it would have for us, but by the grace of God in giving us, and those believers in Colossae, what we don't deserve. That is the gift of faith in Jesus and qualifying us for an inheritance. And I hope, and I, and I pray that all of you this morning who are hearing the truth of who Jesus is and what he did for humanity and, and what will come to pass regarding judgment on those who, who don't profess faith in him, I pray that hearing this will stir your heart to truly contemplate what you deserve and to truly contemplate the message of the free gift of salvation that comes in on the heels of that. And if you have yet to profess saving faith in Jesus, I pray this message of salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit will stir you to not just contemplate this message, but stir you to truly confess your sins before God and to trust in Christ for salvation and be saved and receive the peace he's offering you now and in the life to come. And if you've already professed faith in Jesus, I pray this message of salvation still stirs you not to saving faith, because you already have that, but stirs you to deep worship here and now and later as we take communion and into the next week and beyond. I pray that it stirs you to continued faithfulness and to continued faithful living, knowing what God has freed you from and knowing the blessings of your inheritance and knowing what awaits you in the future. And this is as well what Paul wanted for the Colossians, to be stirred towards continued faithfulness in light of who Christ is and in light of what God had done for them in Christ. Paul in verses 15 through 20 has been lifting up this incomparable Christ and showing the readers the lordship of Jesus over everyone and everything on a cosmic and, and universal scale and showing that nothing compares to him and nothing can stop his eventual universal reign because he is the preeminent one in creation and he is preeminent in his church. And the purpose of this, as I just said, was to stir the believers in Colossae to continued faithfulness. In fact, recall, this is the main purpose of the whole letter, to exhort the believers in Colossae to remain firmly established and steadfast in their faith. And so then along those lines of stirring them with this message to continued faithfulness, 
as we move into verses 21 to 23, we will see Paul bring this message of reconciliation back to the local level. And he'll talk to those believers in Colossae directly and on a more personal level again because ultimately he wants those readers to respond to the message, to respond to what God has done for them in Christ and in giving them an inheritance. This leads to the last point on your outline, the response to the inheritance. Remember, there are false teachers among the church in Colossae. Right? Their pastor Epaphras, as I mentioned earlier, is greatly concerned about their faithfulness. Paul has prayed for them earlier in the letter that they would continue to remain faithful. So in verses 21 to 23, having just talked about what Christ has done on a more cosmic and universal scale, right here in these verses we will see Paul remind them about what God did for them personally. Because while, yes, Jesus is the firstborn of all believers, he is also more specifically for these readers, the firstborn of them. And Paul wants them to hear this on a personal level. So they will reject the false teachers and instead continue to respond to the true message the way they had been responding up to now, that is in faith and in living out their faith. And so he says to them in verse 21, look at verse 21, Paul says, and although you, so you see how I was making this personal now. He says, you, you personally, you who is reading this, you, verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated, that is separated from God and at odds with him because of your sin and subject to the punishment you rightly deserve. These are all things we've talked about. Paul says to them, you personally were formerly in this position and further, because of this, as those who are separated from God and at odds with him, you were also, verse 21, look at it again, you were also hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. This is the result of being dead in sin and separated from God. Paul's giving those believers in Colossae a picture and reminder of who they used to be apart from Christ. They were people who acted with enmity towards God, both in how they thought about him and in how they acted towards him. You see that in the verse? They were hostile in mind and in deeds. And before we shake our fingers at them for acting this way, don't forget, this was your disposition as well before God grabbed a hold of you. You were as well hostile in mind and deed. This is the result of living in the domain of darkness and under the control of the evil one. Paul reminds these believers in Colossae here in verse 21 that this was their former state. They were formerly at odds with God alienated, separated from him, and subject to death and everlasting punishment. But then Paul reminds the Colossians of what God has already done for them. Look at verse 21 again. Paul says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, verse 22, yet, yet, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Having just painted a, a grim picture of the Colossians' pre-Christian and pagan state in verse 21, Paul proceeds in verse 22 to describe the turning point when God acted mightily on their behalf to save them. He talks about what he said earlier in verse 20 about how Jesus reconciled all things to himself and personalizes it to them. Paul says, he has reconciled you, you personally. And where earlier in verse 20, Paul said that that, that reconciliation came through the blood of his cross. Uh, here in verse 22, he, he changes the wording and says Jesus has reconciled them in his fleshly body. You see that? His fleshly body. He's driving home the bodily suffering that Jesus endured for them personally. And as well, he's likely countering false teachings on the incarnation and the full humanity of Jesus. With this wording, I mean, Paul's making clear that in the incarnation, the eternal son took on full humanity. And his full humanity was necessarily bound to his saving work. Jesus had to be fully man and had to suffer in his fleshly body in order for his sacrifice to mean anything. And so with this wording, Paul makes clear that Jesus was fully man in addition to being fully God, and that he in fact did suffer in his human fleshly body in death, and that it was for their sake personally. And then Paul continues in verse 22 by reminding the Colossians of the end result of God saving them 
through the work of Christ. Look at the second half of verse 22. And he reconciled them in his fleshly body through death. Why? In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, some mistakenly take this phrase to mean that in light of what Christ has done for them, Paul is calling them in response to live sanctified lives, lives that are holy and blameless. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. It is true. They and, and we as believers are to do that, be sanctified, live holy and blameless lives in as much as we can. And Paul will exhort the readers to that end later in chapters 3 and 4. But here Paul is saying something different. If I had more time, I could take you into other passages to help you see this more clearly, but for sake of time, I won't. I'll just summarize and say that this is not about calling them to sanctification. Instead, Paul is pointing them to their future. He is bringing them again back to the opening of the letter in verse 5 when he referred to the hope laid up for them in heaven. And he's bringing them again back to verse 12 when he told them that God qualified them for an inheritance. In the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to keep these concepts of their hope and their inheritance in the back of your head because I said Paul would bring them up in these verses. And we saw how the prior verses, verses 13 to 20, they all tied back to explaining how and through who God qualified them for this inheritance. This was points one and two on your outline. Well, here in verse 22, we see this concept come up again. This concept of this future time when the believers in Colossae will be with Jesus. This time represented by these words, hope in verse 5, and inheritance in verse 12. And we see that this future time, this hope and inheritance is actually the reason and end for which Jesus saved them and reconciled them. It's for that future time when they will be presented to Jesus with glorified bodies that are free from the stain and blemish of any sin. Glorified bodies that are, to use the language of verse 22, holy and blameless and beyond reproach so that they can stand in Jesus' presence, ready to be received by him as his bride, at which time those believers in Colossae specifically and all believers from all time generally will enter into his rest, into Jesus' rest. And they will enter into everlasting life with him, a life that will be free from all the turmoil and all the pain and all the confusion and all the dysfunction that this life offers and those false teachers were bringing with them as they infiltrated the hearts and minds of the Colossians. Paul's pointing the readers in verse 22 to this time when they will be free from all of that as a result of what Christ did on their behalf in his fleshly body. But, but, Paul has a warning for them as well. That's a warning for us too. You see this hope, this inheritance that Paul is pointing the readers to in verse 22, this hope of their future everlasting life with Jesus, this hope will only be realized if, verse 23, look at it, verse 23, this future inheritance will only be realized, verse 23, if indeed you, believers in Colossae, and if indeed you, believers at Delray Church, this inheritance will only be realized if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You see the warning an exhortation here? This warning and exhortation frames the whole reason Paul wrote this letter. Remember, these believers in Colossae have been faithful. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul praised them for it. And Epaphras, their pastor, boasted about it. But this verse here shows us that the knowledge and faith and hope that the readers first had was beginning to dim. The false teachers among them had done their job. The heretics had been heard. The voices in the crowd had been convincing and the believers in Colossae were beginning to buckle under these persuasive man-made teachings. Teachings that were not the true message of what God had done for them in Christ, but were a distortion of that gospel message. And so here in verse 23, Paul issues them this warning to let them know that this future hope, this future inheritance, this amazing free gift that God has graciously given them and that God has ultimately saved them for is theirs provided they remain firmly established on the foundation of the one who is the foundation for their faith, the one who is the firstborn from the dead, Jesus, the incomparable Christ. And this type of warning, it's not unique to this letter. 
We see this in other New Testament letters as well. We're not going to look at those this morning, but holding fast to the faith throughout one's life is an indispensable condition in the New Testament for attaining the goal of full salvation that is to be realized at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not to imply that you can lose your faith. No, certainly not. Please don't hear that as what I'm saying or or as what Paul is saying. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that this is not the case in John chapter 39 when he says, all that he, God the Father, all that he has given me, I lose none. What an amazing piece of truth and knowledge that is to know that for God's elect, there is nothing we can do to fall out of favor with him. And thank God that's the case. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we all know that if our salvation was dependent on our actions, we would all be completely hopeless. But that's not how salvation works. Because it's not based on our works. It's based on the work of the incomparable Christ. And his work is perfect. And so Jesus can say in John 39 that all who the Father give me, I will lose none. And then Jesus continues in John 39 and says, but I will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have everlasting life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in verse 22, when he said that those believers in Colossae would one day stand before Jesus holy and blameless. But as we read in verse 23, that's only true if they continue in the faith until the end, because to fall away from the faith would mark them as having never actually received the inheritance and having never actually received the forgiveness of sins to begin with. It would mark them as having never actually been of the faith. And so Paul issues them this warning in verse 23 out of love for them because he wants them to prove to be what he thinks they are and what they've previously shown themselves to be, which is firmly established and faithful. And so he issues them this warning. And as I said, this should as well be a warning for us too this morning. Not to necessarily scare us about our faith or cause us to fear for our faith, but more importantly, to encourage us in our faith, to encourage us to continue to push on and to continue to sacrifice and to continue to fight for the gospel and to continue to fight for unity among Christ's people and to continue to fight against those that would cause disunity and and to continue to push back against those who would create factions among us. And and to continue to call out those who would tickle people's ears with a man-made distortion of the truth like those false teachers were doing to the believers in Colossae. This warning should encourage us to continue to be faithful because of all the things Paul said in verses 13 to 22 that we looked at this morning. It should encourage us to remain faithful because of how God has rescued us from darkness and rescued us from the evil one and how he has brought us back into relationship with himself and how he has promised us that Christ will return for us one day in glory and majesty. And when that day comes, we will realize that all the sacrifices we made and all the ways in which we were willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel and all the ways we were willing to put ourselves second for the sake of others we'll realize that all of that will have been so worth it. In fact, the only regret we might have is that we weren't willing to suffer and strive and sacrifice more than we did to see more people come to faith and to see our church even more united and even more sanctified and even more faithful and to see the name of the incomparable Christ magnified even more throughout the world. That might be the only regret we have, that we weren't willing to do more with the time God gave us in this life. So so let this warning here that Paul issues to the Colossians in verse 23 not scare you, but encourage you. Encourage you to push on and remain faithful and fight the good fight of the faith. It won't be easy, but Jesus has promised to be with us to the end, and he has given us the spirit to guide and empower us, and he has given us one another to lean on and depend on as we push forward together on mission. And so, as we move now into a time of communion, let this small cup that we have here, a little cracker and some juice. If you don't have one there on either sides of the table, you can grab one quickly. But let this small cup, this cracker and this juice, be a constant reminder to us of our call 
to faithfulness. In, in, in light of what God has done for us, let it remind us of what the incomparable Christ did on behalf of all his people, but let it more specifically remind us of what he did on our behalf personally. Let it remind us of what we were freed from because of his death in his fleshly body. He freely offered up his body as a sacrifice on the cross so that we might be saved. Let the juice remind you of the blood he spilled for us. Let the cracker remind you of his, his body that was broken for our sake. And then let these reminders drive us to continued obedience and, and to continued love for one another and to continued love for the lost. So, so let's eat the cracker and let's drink the juice together in remembrance of Jesus, the incomparable Christ. bow your heads and pray with me and then we'll close in a time of song as we um, close our time together. God, we thank you for the gift of your word that we can come to it, study it, see your will for us in it. I pray, God, that as we go from our gathering this morning that we would continue to consider the things that, that, that we've studied. Specifically, that we would consider the, the price of our salvation and how you have rescued us and redeemed us and, and given us an inheritance in the life to come. And I pray, God, that these things would drive us to, to joyfully serve and sacrifice and be, be willing to give up all we have for you and, and your glory and to see the name of Christ proclaimed to all people so that many more can receive this inheritance. As well, God, let this message drive us within our own local church to continued unity and to continued oneness and to have a deep love and care for, for one another so that those who see our community would see Christ displayed and would be drawn to him through us. God, be merciful to us as we, as we seek to live for you because it won't always be easy. There, there will be challenges. There, there will be struggles. But even in the midst of those difficult times, let us remember there is still great and deep joy to be had as we submit to your will and as we live on mission, proclaiming the name of Christ to all people. It is in the name of Christ that I pray these things. Amen.